As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please to pray with me. Uh, Father in heaven, it's our heart's desire now to to open uh, the scripture, which is uh, your word. It's God-breathed, we know. It comes from you. It's written by various people. We know about various circumstances and incidents and so forth, but, but we know that the true source of this word is you, that every word in it is the exact word that you want there. And so we pray that uh, even as you uh, superintended those who uh, wrote it, that now you would come and work in us in such a way that we would uh, speak that which is true of it and receive it and believe it. And this would be pleasing to you. And this I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn to Nehemiah 13, Nehemiah chapter 13. I just want to read the last sentence, Nehemiah 13, just the last sentence. It's a prayer, the last sentence. This is the word of the Lord. Remember me, O my God, for good. Now, it's no great surprise that this... uh, The book of the Old Testament ends in a prayer. It began with Nehemiah praying. You might remember that uh, he was a man who saw himself to be utterly dependent upon God. Remember, he was a slave in the household of the king, Artaxerxes, Persian king. Uh, Those who had occupied um, the Israelites, they were, you remember, exiled into the Babylonian territory. The Persians conquered them, Artaxerxes king. You remember, too, that... um, There was a decree from uh, Cyrus, the conquering king, to allow the Israelites to return to Jerusalem. God put it in the heart of some to go back. They went back, and there was a time when they rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem, this remnant of people that returned. But after some time, still the walls hadn't been rebuilt, so a call came to Nehemiah through his brother, uh, came to him while he was the cupbearer to the king in Susa, the capital, and there he was. And he received this notice that the walls around Jerusalem hadn't been rebuilt. That troubled him because it meant the city was vulnerable. It meant the city couldn't be repopulated. So it meant that the temple area wouldn't be used as it ought, that the Levites and the priests would have to go out and and, and into their own fields to take care of their lives. And and, and so the the temple worship wouldn't happen. If temple worship wouldn't happen, then the community of, of God's people wouldn't come together under him and in him and in his presence and thus in one sense all would be lost and so it troubled him and, 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 he, and he knew that God had called him to go back and supervise the rebuilding of the walls and his, his, his first um, response was to pray. You might remember that he covered himself with sackcloth and ashes, ashes because he was grieved and he knew that The reason his people had been exiled in the beginning was their sin, the rebellion against God. And so he then confessed his sin along with the sin of the people. He identified with the people and confessed sins together. But he did so in the context of knowing God's covenant promise where God said that that, that, that he would, in fact, if his people returned to him, he would return them, restore them. He saw the beginnings of that, this restoration, and now prayed according to God's covenant promises that that God would use him uh, to help bring those promises to fruition. And so there he was, and he prayed that God would give him success. 
And that success meant that, 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 that the king would allow him to go back and do this work. And so then when he found himself in the presence of the king one day, he found himself there often, but on this particular day, you remember the king saw that his face was downcast. That was a dangerous position for him to be in because you weren't allowed to be sad in the presence of the king because it reflected badly on the king. It said you weren't happy to be in the presence of the king. And so there he was sad in the presence of the king. And the king said, what's up? And Nehemiah turned to him, and the first thing he did at that point was to pray. He prayed again, just one of those quiet, quick arrow prayers. Some people call them this prayer to, to God help me in the midst of this situation. And so the king said, what are you requesting? And Nehemiah went on for his request, send me back and give me um, Give me leave that I may go back. Protect me, help me as we rebuild the walls around this city of Jerusalem. And the king granted it. So you can see Nehemiah as a, as a praying man. And in fact, even when difficulties came, he prayed in, in chapter 4 um, and verse 4. Um, we read these words here. Oh, our God, for we're despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads. Give them up to plunder and so forth and so on. And then in verse uh, verse 9, and we pray to our God and set a guard as a protection against him day and night. And so when the enemies came, he prayed. He prayed that God would God's justice would be served against the enemies. And he also prayed then that God would help them in such a way that they had confidence then to set a guard. Their setting a guard as protection um, for themselves wasn't a, uh, an act of non-faith, but it was an act of faith, trusting that God would help them uh, in the midst of of that. That was that was their prayer. And then even these prayers that we uh, I mentioned here in chapter 4 and verse 4 and 5 where Nehemiah is praying that God's justice would be done. I mean, we, we talked about this here. Oh, our God, uh, for we despise, turn back their taunt and their own heads and give them up to, to, to be plundered in a land where they, where, where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the, of the builders. And then even in uh, chapter 13 in verse 29 uh, he has another uh, prayer remember them oh my god that is the enemies because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood uh, and of the levites and so he even depends upon god for justice that god would bring justice so see he's a man not only of prayer but he's a man of prayer because he's a man who realizes his utter and complete dependence Upon God, that's the nature of prayer. When we pray, we're expressing the fact that we're dependent upon God. We know our own weakness. We know his strength and promises. And thus we can come to him and to rely upon him and pray. So that's the kind of man Nehemiah was. So, so it doesn't surprise us at all that he ends this whole memoir, if you will, with a prayer. Remember me, oh my God, for good. But I have to admit, this prayer strikes me as odd. Uh, these other prayers were, were prayers where he was engaged and saying, God, help us do this or help us do that or forgive us our sins. This one seems a bit self-serving. It's a bit cheeky, it seems to me, that he's being somewhat uh, even uh, presumptuous upon God. Remember me, oh my God, for good. Or as some versions would have, uh, with your favor. It seems to be a rather self-serving uh, prayer. 
I mean, he, he prays uh, similar kinds of prayers throughout. We've noted them as we've been working our way through Nehemiah, but I purposely skipped them for uh, today. Uh, for instance, in Nehemiah chapter 5, in verse 19, similar prayer. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. So this isn't unique. This has been running through Nehemiah's heart and, and mind as he's been uh, working to re- re- rebuild the wall and reestablish this community of, of worshipers. Verse 19, remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. And then earlier, even in this chapter 13, read it last Sunday, but sort of moved over it in uh, the end of verse um, or in verse 14, he says, Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I've done for the house of my God and for his service. Again, you go, wow. Seems a little self-serving. Then the end of verse 22. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. And then he kind of ends all of this with a bit of a quick summary. Remember me, O my God, for good. So the question is, what was he really praying here? And can we pray it? What was he praying here? What was he asking really? And is it appropriate for us to appropriate this kind of praying in our own lives, God, remember us um, for good. Re- remember us for good. Well, I'm going to conclude yes and yes. Uh, uh, yes, that uh, uh, it is noble in a sense, right, for him to pray this and also for us too. Let's just take a peek at it. Uh, it begins all of these prayers with the word remember. Now we know that when we ask God to remember we're not assuming that he's forgotten. We're not thinking, well, if I don't remind God of this, boop, it's gone. You know, he, he doesn't have a very good memory. It isn't that at all. When we're asking God to remember, we're asking if God will take note of it and act. We're asking for God to take note of something and act. In Genesis uh, 8, uh, verse 1, in the whole narrative about Noah, it says that God remembered Noah and all the livestock, and therefore caused the waters to recede. It isn't that he had forgotten and one day woke up and said, oh my goodness, Noah's floating around on a bunch of water with animals. Uh, I better do something about this. Why didn't somebody tell me? Uh, it isn't that at all. It, it means that this is the moment in time where God acknowledged it, uh, called attention to it, and acted in a way that was consistent with this promise. In other occasions, especially in the Old Testament Pentateuch, uh, we realize that, that God... Uh, remembers his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the sense of it. And again, it isn't that he forgot about it. It isn't that he forgot, oh, Abraham, remind me about him again. It wasn't that. It was that he, at that moment in time, acknowledged it and was going to do something. Anytime in scripture we read about God remembering, we know something's going to happen. And so what what, what Nehemiah is praying isn't, God, pay attention to me because I think you've forgotten about me. Sometimes we feel that way. We have some psalms to that effect. But that's not his point here. He's acknowledged all the promises that you've made and, and act. And act in such a way towards me, oh my God, that is good. 
And, and when he uses the expression, oh my God, and he does in all of these, remember, oh my God, in some sense, in all of these kinds of prayers, he's, he's saying, God, we're in covenant together. You're my God and I belong to you. Anytime you see, especially in the Old Testament, but even in the New, you read this expression, my God or my people, you realize that's a covenant expression. God is saying, uh, you're mine, I'm yours. We belong to each other. I've made promises to you. You've made vows to me. And so we're in this covenant relationship together. And so when Nehemiah is saying, according to your covenant, God, work in such a way in my life, that is good, that brings good, that acknowledges that what I have been doing is good. And there's that sense that he desires for God to say what we read in that parable, well done. Well done. And he says to God, could I hear that? Could you remember me, oh my God, for good? To say, yes, Nehemiah, I'm pleased with you. It's personal. Now, when we read this again, as I said, it sounds a bit maybe even irreverent or inappropriate or a bit disrespectful or self-serving to pray this. But, but we know Nehemiah through this whole Letter. We know a memoir. In the beginning, uh, he, he expresses the fact that he realized that he's a sinner as all the people were. He identifies with the people. So when Nehemiah is praying this, he's, he's not saying, God, I'm not a sinner. He's not saying, God, I merit this. Uh, he's just simply acknowledging something that's deep within him about his life and the work that he's done as he reflects, uh, as he reflects upon it. Um, even in chapter 5, as he prays a similar prayer to this, that I read a, uh, a moment ago, uh, chapter 5, verse 19. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. What he's making reference to is they had lived before them with integrity. That he wasn't like all the other governors who had been before him and exploited the people. Rather, he was generous to the people. Uh, rather than making them uh, serve him, he served them. Rather than making them pay for all the meals, he paid for all the meals up to 150 people that sat at his table. And why did he do that? Well, in the middle of verse 15 of chapter 5, he said, because of the fear of God. He did all this because he feared God. Not that he was afraid that God would punish him if he didn't, but he feared God in the sense that he wanted God to be honored not himself. He wanted to live to please God. That's why he did it. And so this prayer, I think if we're going to allow Nehemiah to be consistent in his own heart and mind, needs to be understood in that context. When he was praying, remember me, oh my God, for good. Uh, he wasn't saying, I merit that he knew that he was a sinner. And he knew that what he did, he did out of the fear of God. He's saying, God, even this prayer, I'm praying to honor you out of fear for you. Would you please Take all that I've done and make it good. Say it's good. We, we see that. And then even, <clears throat> excuse me, in chapter 13 and verse 14. Remember me, O oh my God, concerning this and do not wipe out my good deeds for I, that I have done for the house of my God and his servants. Well, what, are, what, was, what was that prayer concerning? The prayer was concerning, remember when he came back, he had, he had been in, in Jerusalem and, and all was wonderful. 
And then he left for a number of years. We don't know how long. And then he returned. And when he returned, he found out that everything that he had established and all the vows that the Israelites had made had been done away with. That, that even though when he left, they were bringing all their tithes into the storehouses of the, of the temple so that there could be temple worship, so that the priests and Levites could, could stay in the temple and have a life and not have to, to work in the fields and, and there was sufficient animals and grain for sacrifices so they could do the work of the temple and everything was running wonderfully well and the people were worshiping God. Oh, when he came back, none of that was happening. They had moved all the stuff out, you remember, the storehouses so that the enemy uh, 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 could come in and Tobiah could come in and live and realize that then the priests had to go out and the Levites had to go out and work in the field. So there was nobody there to work the temple. So none of it was happening. And so he came in and, 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 and restructured again everything. So that there could be worship in the temple. And so he's saying very nobly, really, his heart to please the Lord, saying, remember me, oh my God, concerning this. Don't wipe on any of these good deeds that I've done for the house of God and his servant. Because if you do, then we're just going to go back to no worship. If, if you wipe out all this that, that I've done, then we're going to go back to a community of people not worshiping. So please... Allow what we've done here, what I've done here, to remain. And then even in chapter 13, the end of verse 22. Remember this also in my favor, O oh my God. Again, remember that I've reinstituted the Sabbath day so people could glorify you and reflect upon you and, and rest in you. Remember this also in my favor, O oh my God, and spare me. He's asking for God's mercy according to the greatness of your covenant love. That is the greatness of your steadfast love. So this isn't an arrogant man praying this prayer. This is a humble man. A man who desires for God to be pleased. And that he himself too would know the pleasure of God. Knowing that God is pleased is a deep Seated need in every human being. It's the way that Jesus lived. Jesus lived to please his Father. Notice John chapter 5 and verse 30. John chapter 5 and verse 30. Jesus said, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Some translations, I seek not to please myself, not to do my own will, but to please him who sent me. This is what it means to be a human being. What it means to be a human being is to live to please God. Do you remember what Paul said in Second Corinthians in chapter 5? Whether we live or whether we die, we do so to please the Lord. It's a deep-seated need in us to please God. The, the problem is that sin has come and perverted that so that now we live as sinners suppressing that desire, that need to please God and the joy of it. We've suppressed it to where we live to please other people. 
We've displaced that. Notice how Jesus puts it in verse, well, where's the sentence? Verse 41 in chapter 5 of John. Jesus said, I do not receive glory from people. Now, that's a funny expression, isn't it? Because we come to worship to glorify Jesus. But you get the context here. He's saying, I don't live to please people. I live to please my father. I don't live to do what you want me to do. If Jesus lived to do what the people wanted him to do, he would have been king. He would have just been a king. Just a regular king guy. An earthly king, right? They wanted to make him king. He said, no, 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 no. I didn't come to do your will. I came to please my father. My father sent me to die. So that's what I'm going to do. Being your king, like you want me to be king, is way easier than dying and being king like my father wants me to be. But I didn't come to do to be glorified, to glorify, to, to receive glory from people. Verse 42. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. Hang on to that a minute. Verse 44. How can you believe when you receive glory or praise from one another and you do not seek glory or praise that comes from the only God? He says, here's the problem. You've so perverted your own desires. Your own desires are so perverted by sin that you would rather have the praise of people rather than the praise of God. And as long as that's true, you'll never know me. You'll never receive me. You'll receive somebody who comes in their own name because they're just like you. Because there's, there's, there, you have to die to nothing. But Jesus says, I don't come in my own name. I come in the name of my Father. And when I come in the name of my Father, I, I bear a cross. I die to any desire to glorify or to be gloried in by others so that I may only please my Father. And I come with that cross to you that you too may die to all your desires to please people and to live according to their will. And I come now with this cross that you'll die to that and live according to the will of my Father to please him. And when that happens, when that work of the cross happens in our lives, then we can now know the joy of this deep-seated need to know the pleasure of God. Turn to Matthew chapter 6. I know this is really heavy. It's a lot heavier than you were thinking. You'd hit. I don't know why, though. You should know that. It's going to come. Uh, talking about God, not easy stuff, right? Physics is easy compared to this, right? So... This isn't, this is doable uh, because of the Spirit. Matthew 6, you know this, Sermon on the Mount stuff. Verse 2. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. That's it, isn't it? Hypocrites are play actors. We are hypocrites. By... Sinful nature, we're hypocrites, just own that. We do, great danger for us, we do righteous deeds 
for the wrong reasons. We do righteous deeds not to be not to be praised by God. That's an interesting expression, isn't it? But to be praised by people. That's why we do them, so other people will be impressed with us. Um, I've made mention before that the first time my friend, our friend Jerry Bridges, quoted me in a book. It was in a book called The Joy of Fearing God. Not that he quotes me all the time in his books, by the way. Uh, but in this occasion, he did. Fortunately, he didn't use my whole name. But one day, he and I were talking b- between services or sometime, and we were talking about preaching and, and preparation for preaching. And, and I mentioned to him that my heart is to come every Sunday in here early and pray for a while. And, and um, in those days, I was praying in the gym. But uh, before the service, he said, what do you pray? And I said, well... I begin by praying, God, we both know that I want to be glorified. We both know that'll be death to everybody who comes, myself included. We both know that the only thing that matters, the only thing that will help us, and the only thing that will bring us joy, is that if you're glorified. So sometimes I look at my watch and I say, see, you got like two hours to work this out. Right? Because that's the very nature of us. The problem is, sin has so perverted us that we live to be praised by others rather than to know the pleasure of God, the joy of our master. And the, entering the joy of our master is when we hear, well done, good and faithful servant. There's something about that in every one of us that wants to hear that. There was something in Nehemiah that at the end of all this, he looked at his life and he says, oh, the, God, please remember me. Oh my God, my covenant God for whom I've been serving. Remember me for good. All this that I've done. On the one hand, if it isn't remembered for good, if it goes bad, if it, if it stops, then, 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 then you won't be worshipped and that'll be sad. And, and God, I, I simply want to know that you're pleased. There's something about that deep within us, you see. And, and Jesus acknowledges it. Here he says, he says, we're hypocrites. Um, we do these righteous deeds. So he said, truly I say to you that you've, they have received their reward. You see, the problem is that when we live for the praise of men, we'll get it. But that will never satisfy. will never satisfy. First of all, it won't satisfy because it's not God's. And that's really deep-seated what we're suppressing. We want that, but we'll settle for this. And when we settle for that, the praise of men, it can't really satisfy what's deep, deep within us. This desire to know the pleasure of God. Plus, you know, as well as I do, the praise of men, your praise to others, my praise to you, your praise to me is fickle. Standards change all the time. We have an expression in our household, cool marches on. What may have been cool and you may have been cool at a moment in time, it's just going to flee. You're going to turn a particular age and look in the mirror and say, why is my dad in the mirror? 
And what was once cool isn't in your life. And, and you no longer receive that praise that you once received, you see. I think you have to work up another way, reinvent. And, and then you'll receive praise in a different segment, different cohort of, of people, perhaps. But, but with that, And then finally you're dying and you realize. And so the praise of men, you see, will never satisfy. And Jesus makes knowledge of that. So then he says, but when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your, your giving may be in secret and your heavenly father who sees in secret will reward you. Now Jesus doesn't spell out that reward. There's some who teach, well, if you give to others, God will give you a lot. It's just never worked for me, by the way. I mean, you know. But I believe that reward is the well done. The, well, the reward is knowing the joy of our master. I confess to you that recently, Karen and I have been a bit addicted to a television show uh, called Madam Secretary. I don't know if you've ever watched it. I've, if you watch it and it's not good, don't, don't blame me. But anyway, we just, you know, it's, I don't know why. We need something mindless. We can watch it on Netflix or whatever and it's no commercial. So, you know, you can rationalize watching an hour's worth of television in, you know, 40 minutes. But one of the expressions that this Madam Secretary uses and others in contexts like this is that anytime there's a conflict with what she wants and what the president wants is she reminds herself or the president reminds her that she serves at his pleasure. And so many times, and I know politicians who use this expression, she says, but I serve at the pleasure of the president. And, and her kids will say, but mom, you can't do that. Or her husband will say, how can we? And, and she even has this inner conflict even with herself and, and maybe other staffers. But, but then bottom line is, I serve at the will, of, uh, I serve at the will, I serve at the pleasure of the president. And, and that's, that's life for us. We serve at the pleasure of God. And if we serve at any other, anyone else's pleasure, that's sin, that's idolatry, and that'll kill us. And ultimately, you see, the reward of serving at the pleasure of someone else brings that reward and it's that pleasure and that will never satisfy, that will ultimately be hell. And so we serve at the pleasure of the Lord and there's something to that deep within us. The fool says in his heart there is no God. And what the fool misses out on is that knowing the joy of God, the best he has is the joy of himself that comes from his own pleasure, pleasing himself or pleasing others. And that will never satisfy. St. Augustine, in, in a phrase I'm sure that has been used and perhaps perverted some, this is how we have it. God has created us for him and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. This is true. This is true. And there's a sense in which at the end of his life, Nehemiah said, God, remember me. I've served you. Please don't let what I've done here be destroyed because if it is, there will be no worship of you. But you're my covenant God, so I know that somehow I'm praying according to your rules. Somehow I know that you're going to bring something out because this is your way, this is your pleasure to have a people that worships 
of a people that worships you. And as I hear Nehemiah pray that, and even as I incorporate that into my own life, and I, I pray, God, remember me for good. I, I pray, God, that the life that I live is pleasing to you. There's a sense in which, at least for me, I kind of pray that with tongue in cheek. I pray that going, but I know about this, and I know about this, and I know about this, and I know about this. But I also know about one who, as he began his ministry life, God said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And therefore I realize that in him, in the son, in Jesus, united to him, God can then say all the time, Bill is my son in whom I am well pleased. Because he really does see me in Christ. And it isn't just, you know, done with uh, uh, smoke and mirrors that God kind of has to just kind of... It's real. There's a, we got to get in our heads. There's a real... It's real. The, the, the God isn't playing when he does that. He really does believe that. It really is true. You know, I have to admit, when I think about that, I think God's kind of going, okay, uh, Bill's righteous in my sight. But he's not really looking at me, you know. And, and perhaps you could say he's looking at Jesus, but, but I'm in there. I'm in there. You're in there. It's really real. He really does think that. It's, it's just a, a, an amazing thought, I suppose. That he really does think that it really is true. And not only that, that because of the work of Christ in us by his spirit, he's working in us. You'll know this expression. That which is well-pleasing in his sight. See, what Nehemiah was praying was in a sense the benediction that we use very often. And now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip us with everything good for doing his will. For good. Working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight. Now, I know the benedictions at the end and kind of standing there going, late for lunch or breakfast or whatever it is. Uh, he went too long again. Like, it's a surprise. Uh, but that expression, when we use that benediction, should thrill your soul, thrills mine, should thrill mine. Because then you see, if that's true, God is saying, I'll remember you for good. I really will. I, a day really will come when you'll hear me say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Come live in the joy in which I live. And our confidence is that he is a covenant God that we can say to him, oh my God, because on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body which is given for you. He says, right now I'm making this covenant because he went on to say, as he took the cup, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. He said, 
This cup is the new covenant in my blood so that we can, in Jesus, cry out to him and say, Oh my God, you're mine, I'm yours. We're, uh, we're united together. This is really true. The death that you died, I died to sin so that I may live to you. The righteousness that is yours is righteousness that is mine because I'm in you. And you're working this in me all the time. And that, you see, is what brings to the heart of a human being the deepest sense of joy. That's really, really what we all long for. That's really, really what's been perverted by sin. This sense of knowing the pleasure of God. Jesus knew it. And we were united to him so that we might know it too. Let's pray, Father. I pray for me and for us that we would know your joy. We would know your good pleasure. And we would live according to your will to please you. Please, I pray, forgive us me. Forgive us for living to praise, to the praise of others, for the praise of others. What a shallow life. (laughs) What a life that isn't even human. So I pray that you would work in us that which is well-pleasing in your sight. That you would remember each one of us, oh, our God, for good. Take, I pray, this bread and this juice and set it apart in such a way that we'll know we're in the very presence of this one in whom you're well pleased. And even as we take it and it goes within us, that we would realize that symbol of being united to him, that he's in us. And thus we're in you. And that you are pleased. And this I pray. In Jesus name.